We learned a lot about unemployment during the pandemic. How might that change policy in America going forward? From SDPB Radio, it's Friday, November 3rd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour in 2020, the doors open for more people to be eligible for unemployment benefits, and then the doors closed again. Now, the fight over who got what and whether they have to pay it back continues, but policymakers have also been surprised at how normally ineligible people responded to the conditions and incentives of unemployment. We'll dig in. The child care crisis worsens. We'll talk facility closures and staffing woes in the Black Hills, plus an artistic collaboration and new music to kick off your weekend. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Well, for three weeks, the U.S. House of Representatives went without a speaker. That was the longest stretch of time the House had been officially leaderless for 61 years. We've checked in with Representative Dusty Johnson throughout the turmoil, and he returns now. He's on the phone to talk about the election of Speaker Mike Johnson, along with a look at what's next. Congressman Johnson, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to start uh, with the aid package for Israel that the House approved yesterday. So the last time you talked, uh, you reminded all South Dakotans that America gets to the right place, but often in the most messiest of paths. (laughs) So this $14.5 billion military aid package for Israel, do you think it's the right place or is it a step along the messy path? Uh, I think it's probably a step along the messy path. The Senate and the White House have indicated they don't like the pay for. Uh, And what that means is because we're $33 trillion in debt, uh, House Republicans have a pretty strong commitment to if we're going to spend money, we got to find some other place to cut or some way to generate the revenue. We chose uh, to reduce the amount of new money going to the IRS. And the White House doesn't like that, pay for, but I think the more more important thing for House Republicans is, well, okay, but let's talk about a pay for. Clearly, we really do need to help Israel. I think $14 billion is the right number. I think it's pretty targeted. Uh, but, you know, th- this money doesn't grow on trees. If the White House has a better pay for they're interested in, I think we're all ears. So the Senate says they're not going to take it up. Uh, Chuck Schumer said it was stunningly unserious. You've been accused of of not understanding the urgency of an aid package for Israel. But we know from talking to you before how important the the fiscal responsibility for the United States is going forward. Do you think that this departure from the norm of getting an aid package through in an emergency, but yet tying it to some kind of, uh, you know, other pay cut. Do you think that's the right direction? Yeah, I would just observe uh, that it is odd that the idea that something should be paid for is it can be labeled as, you know, stunningly unserious. Uh, I mean, this is not it's not hard to imagine that we could do right. There's lots of pots of money in, in within the federal government that I think we should be willing to uh, to uh, to divert. Uh, for when we've got a problem. That that happens to a lot of us, right? I had to put uh, four new tires on my car last week. That was a little unexpected. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't go down to the bank to get a loan for that. Instead, I had to rearrange some uh, family finances and make sure that we uh, took care of business and, and dealt with the urgent and the important, which tires are. And I think Israel is. And I, I think 
I'm always a little bemused that the Senate can criticize the House work product when the Senate hasn't done their own work product. This is not as though Chuck Schumer has passed this perfect, beautiful bill that is just waiting for action over here. I mean, they literally haven't done anything, but they're pretty good at criticizing when we do something. This idea that the cuts to the IRS would actually cost more money. It's more expensive, according to the Congressional Budget Office, because you're losing revenue from tax collections. Republicans have pushed back against that. What's your stance? If the money that was going to the IRS was better targeted, I think it would have a lot more support among Republicans. I do think uh, there are plenty of tax cheats we're not catching, and we do want to catch tax cheats. Uh, People should be paying their fair share. Most studies that I have read from uh, entities outside the federal government indicate that technology is going to play a much bigger role there than more IRS agents. The Biden administration request uh, wasn't for 87,000 IRS agents. That's been a Republican talking point that I think has been a little overblown. But it was a lot of human power. And I think in that way it was really misallocated and I think gave rise to some fears that if the way you catch rich tax cheats is through technology, then what's all this human power for? And some thought that it was you know, maybe going to actually put a burden on uh, more middle-class tax returns where technology is not quite as good as sniffing out problems, uh, but that humans can sort of churn through these audits. You do need humans to do the audits. And and because the money doesn't go to technology, I think there is some open question about whether or not it would actually generate as much new tax revenue as um, a different approach. And so I do doubt that cutting $14 billion from the IRS would actually cost us an additional $15 billion or whatever the CBO says. I think they're off base on that. $12.5 billion is what I have marked down. Um, so back to this sense of urgency, because what you described is incredibly nuanced. It's, you know, obviously what needs to be discussed about whether this money for the IRS is targeted well. Um, that sounds like a long debate to me. And then there's this military aid package to Israel, which meanwhile is not going through. Do you understand the sense of urgency? If you could address that, yes, please. Yes, of course. And uh, I do think it's disappointing that the Senate hasn't acted. I mean, if they didn't like what we did the other day, they could have taken up our bill put in a different pay for and sent it back. And we could have voted on it today. That's not really, I guess, how they're inclined to do business. And we're not trying to have this debate about the IRS now. We've been having this debate on the IRS for, you know, three years or something, two years. I mean, whenever I think that might have been a part of the Inflation Reduction Act. So maybe that was just over 18 or 20 months ago. But um And so this is not some new issue. I mean, Republicans have long held that those dollars could be better targeted. And I think Israel is a much better place to target them. Yeah. So that would bring to the point that people are making that if you've been talking about this a long time, that you're really using, uh, you're politicizing help for Israel, making Democrats vote against it, for example, or, you know, what have you. Um, Is that a fair assessment, that this has become more political? Something that's been traditionally nonpartisan has become politicized, and it's time to, you know, dredge up an issue that you know you can't agree on and tie it to something that everybody would normally vote together on. Well, there were Democrats that voted for it. Now, not 100, but uh, somewhere between a dozen and two dozen. Uh, And so they didn't, uh, I think, uh, imagine that it, we were too politicizing an issue. And I think the bigger question is, uh, you know, okay, if this isn't the right pay for, I mean, I'm not saying this is the plan. I'm saying it's a plan. And I, well, of course, we need to help Israel. But we also have a clear and present danger 
from a government that is drifting ever closer to insolvency. I think the hour is later than most Americans realize. And I, I, I guess if trying to have a conversation about paying for government spending as you're putting $14 billion out the door uh, is a problem, then I think we're going to continue to have, I mean, I, I just, I think that's going to continue to be a real value of the Republican House. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit, especially in the context of Speaker Mike Johnson. We all know he took a central role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. How do you see that impacting his leadership in the House going forward? He has, I think when people tried to talk about 2020, he's really said, hey, listen, we need to focus on the future. We've got a government shutdown that's happening in 15 days. So it's not the kind of thing that he's got religion on week in and week out. Um, he, I think, has been given a lot more... I think in an attempt to brand him early, people have tried to t call him this mastermind of uh, the efforts to uh, overturn the 2020 election. I mean, the only thing that I saw him having leadership on in a big way was an amicus brief filed with the Supreme Court. I think it was a case that Texas had calling into question how much flexibility state executives have to change election law, in essence, without any uh, any blessing from state legislatures. And, and by the way, that's a legitimate legal question. I mean, the Supreme Court took it up because it's a legitimate legal question. Mike Johnson was able to get more than 100 members of Congress to sign on to that uh, friend of the court brief. I did not sign on to it. I did not agree with his constitutional interpretation, but it was not a ridiculous interpretation. Uh, again, I think reasonable people can disagree about uh, this area where our Article one language and Article three language don't quite mesh perfectly. I think they can disagree about where they think that leaves us. Uh, he is uh, really focused on the future, and uh, I don't. Th he doesn't talk about the 2020 election really ever. All right. So one more thought I want you to address um, a voter specifically in South Dakota. I'm sure we'll be talking about Speaker Johnson in the future and your work with him. Um, he has in the past also written editorials calling homosexuality inherently unnatural, harmful, costly. He's called the LGBTQ community deviants and said same-sex marriage could pretty much doom the republic. So speak to your constituents in South Dakota who are part of the LGBTQ community and help them understand what you see in the weeks ahead when some of these issues arise, how you will represent them. First off, obviously, we're all called to treat everybody with respect, and I have very little appetite for people who I think uh, use uh, dehumanizing language uh, to talk about uh, anybody, and unless they're engaged in, in you know, acts of violence. And I don't know, with all these quotes, how old uh, some of them are for Mike Johnson. I would tell you he is somebody that treats yeah. everyone with civil. I'm sorry, go ahead, Laurie. 2004, is some, some of them are from that era. Yeah. So if you're talking 20 years ago, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm open to being fact-checked because it's not like I have a sheet in front of me. But, I mean, 20 years ago, Joe Biden was opposed to gay marriage. I mean, 20, marriage, 20 years ago, Barack Obama was opposed to gay marriage. 20 years ago, Hillary Clinton was opposed to gay marriage. Now, Mike Johnson is still not a proponent of a gay marriage, to my understanding, but I do think that we want to. We, we, we I think we want to take care before we use 18 or 20 year old quotes to try to give us a sense of where is somebody's heart today, in how to treat people, because this has been an issue where obviously our country's seen some pretty dramatic changes.
directly to those constituents in South Dakota, where is your heart, heart at today? Before some of these well, issues arise, is the fresh. law of the land. The Supreme Court has made that clear. Uh, I find it impossible to imagine that's going to change any time. Uh, it's certainly not something that I'm pushing to have changed. I do think when Congress last year attempted to deal with this issue, we simply didn't provide enough uh, protections for people's deeply held religious views. I know we can do that. I mean, I know we're grown up and mature enough to say, how do we respect people, uh, you know, people who are gay, respect their decision and their freedom, while at the same time not infringing on people's uh, deeply held religious views? Now, let's be clear. That bill that passed the House, passed the Senate, and was signed into law didn't change anything. It did not change a single thing because gay marriage is the law of the land, uh, and frankly, a more robust version of gay marriage is the law of the land because of the Supreme Court decision. But I do think... Uh, we've got to be willing, I think, to find uh, a middle ground in respecting people's views, and I don't think uh, the legislation last year did that. We're going to leave it here for now. Um, Representative Dusty Johnson from South Dakota, we thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Lori. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, unemployment insurance benefits are only available to people who meet certain requirements. But are those requirements and eligibility thresholds set correctly? Would an expansion help or hurt the economy? Amanda Michaud is a senior research economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, and she has been diving into putting those very questions under scrutiny. She's with me on the phone now to talk about her research. Amanda, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. And to be clear, uh, we're going to be talking about my research today. These aren't official views of the Federal Reserve. Thank you for that. All right. So your research is trying to understand those people that don't normally qualify for unemployment insurance, which is something like more than 43 million Americans. And that can be based on how long they've held a job. It can be based on how much income they've had in certain quarters. I looked up the South Dakota rules this morning. They're really complex, you know, based on when the quarter, you know, how things are measured. So during the pandemic, we saw everything change. And you said, we really ought to study <laughs> what happens when everything changes. And you developed a model. Tell us a little bit about your process going through what you were, what kind of research questions you were hoping to answer. Yeah, that's right. Not many people are aware, but a quarter of all workers who are employed at any given time would not be eligible for unemployment insurance because they haven't worked long enough. You said the rules in South Dakota are kind of complicated, but it's about two quarters in every state. And you have to have worked uh, with high enough earnings over those two quarters. South Dakota is actually pretty low. It would be five hours at the minimum wage, but other states like Michigan, it would be 30 hours at the minimum wage. During the pandemic, um, because there was a crisis and unemployment, you know, really shot up, the government tried to get more benefits to more unemployed people and removed those requirements. And that quarter of all workers was suddenly eligible. So we had to think, figure out what's going to happen. How long are these workers going to remain unemployed? How much do they need this money? And we didn't have any surveys or any prior research because we have never had such a large expansion before. Yeah. How did you use machine learning and modeling to help you predict things? And then we'll get into some of your surprising results. Yeah. Um, for the pandemic, what I did is I developed a methodology to be able to use aggregated data. So I didn't need data on individuals. I could look at data on total claims 
how many of those were continued and how many of those were new to be able to predict how long different categories of workers would be staying on unemployment. Now, I didn't want to just make a statement based on what was happening during the pandemic, because it's right. possible that during all recessions, uh, the behavior of these different types of workers changed. And so I use machine learning techniques to compare to the Great Recession. Um, machine learning allowed me to predict which workers were claiming during that time and which workers weren't, even though we didn't have direct data on who was who. Yeah. So anecdotally, one of the things I remember talking about during that time, especially with some family members who work in the restaurant industry, was you know the unemployment payment was greater than the regular, you know, how much they would have earned had they been at work. And you get into that in your research with this idea of moral hazard. So explain to people what that means. When you're trying to balance the incentives and the conditions, what does, how does moral hazard figure into the conversation? That's right. So workers who are collecting unemployment insurance are also looking for jobs, but they might be more or less picky in which jobs they're taking. If they're receiving a high level of unemployment insurance, they're going to raise their standards about which jobs they're willing to take because the cost for them of not taking the job in the moment is offset by the unemployment insurance that they're collecting. And you're absolutely right that during the COVID period, there were various programs in place that meant that people who are on unemployment insurance, especially these newly eligible workers, some of them are receiving more through unemployment insurance than they had been earning on the job. And that would make them very picky in which sorts of jobs that they were willing to take and thus make them claim longer um, and remain unemployed longer. You did find some few surprises when you really look into the context of what's happening. Help us understand some of the results of your research that you find particularly significant. Yeah, so I would say that there was two big surprises. The first is, even though I just told you that some workers were earning basically more on unemployment insurance than they were earning in the market, they still went back to work. So <laughs> all the models were predict that they would stay unemployed longer, but they went back to work faster than the models would predict. That's the first surprise, and it's linked perhaps to the second surprise. Um, when you look at the people who were classically ineligible, there's lots of differences across them. They're very likely to be over the age of 65 or under the age of 25, for example. So you have to think, you know, why is somebody choosing to work, let's say, five hours a week at a minimum wage job? And you can start to think of these different stories. So maybe for the younger workers, they're building experience so that they can get a job later. And in that case, they're willing to work for, you know, less than they would have earned on unemployment insurance because they value that experience. And that's an important thing to consider when you're considering the moral hazard provided by these programs. Yeah. So um, when we talk about how policymakers might use this in the future, it's incredibly nuanced. They might move one lever, but not the other. Um, I was just talking to Congressman Dusty Johnson, and, you know, it strikes me that in a short conversation, it's hard to bring things down to a soundbite that doesn't uh, misfire in some ways. How do you hope that this research is used not only by policymakers, but by researchers who can continue to fill in some of our gaps in knowledge? What do you hope happens next? Well, from the policy perspective, there's a clear result in the research. There's two um, levels of qualification. One is how long you have worked, and the other is how much you have earned. 
what I find in my research is that if we expand unemployment insurance by expanding um, towards people who have just entered or re-entered the labor force, there's a lot of insurance value from that and very little moral hazard. So this is related to the story I just talked about, where if you have somebody who's just coming out of college, maybe they've already spent only spent one month on the job, but they're very motivated to go find that next job and providing them with unemployment insurance isn't going to stop them from seeking employment and being motivated to go back to work. Amanda Michaud, Senior Research Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank, again talking to Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, I should say, but again talking to us about her personal research, which we'll put a link up to on our website. Amanda, we really appreciate your time. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, this season of South Dakota Focus on SDPB has been diving into the well-being of South Dakota's children. Focus's latest episode looks at the child care crisis across the state. Joining us now from the Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in SDPB's Rapid Studio office, we have YMCA CEO Keys Larson from Rapid. Keys talked with South Dakota Focus host Jackie Hendry in August, and we're going to check back in on what's happened even since their conversation. Keys Larson, welcome. Thanks for being here. Lori, thanks for having me. I was telling uh, our producers this morning in our meeting that the word crisis, I'm always hesitant to use it, and Jackie Hendry's reporting has showed me again and again that that is the right word to be using right now. Why would you, if people said to you, oh, come on, is it a crisis? How would you respond to that? Oh, I use that word crisis <laughs> a lot. It's accurate. Um, I think yeah. that it is very accurate. Jackie did a great job of, um, if anyone hasn't seen her earlier piece, um, they should go to the archives in, in your area because truly she hit so many hard conversations that we're having right now in childcare. And, and it goes everything, everywhere from the childcare teacher's staff. Uh, we can't find staff. The staffing shortage has really impacted impacted all of the agencies across the state. But then it also goes to um, our economic development. And for those of you who maybe don't know, I mean, if parents can't find childcare, they can't go to work. And so we really need to look at this as a, a root problem in South Dakota right now. Yeah, we were just talking with an economist about, uh, you know, <laughs> the moral hazard, what were the incentives to stay home or to go into the workplace? And if the punishment for going to the workplace is a $27,000 a year childcare bill, um, you are definitely making decisions about uh, um, who gets to go in and find that next job and use their skills. Tell me a little bit about how you see the, the business model of childcare yeah, that's that's a crazy thing. I mean, I think all of us have continued to look at business models, um, and and what that work, how that works. Um, the Verkovich John T. Verkovich Foundation just had a presentation on October thirtieth. Um, the the presentation was t entitled "How to Not Get Rich Quick mm -hmm. While Childcare Is Too Expensive and Not Expensive Enough in Rapid City." 
And so, again, their presentation um, hit so many hard conversations, just as you mentioned. If you have two children and you're spending $27,000 a year on childcare, and you are, you know, in that lower livable wage area of, of $35,000, it doesn't make sense uh, to actually take your kids to childcare. And so we're missing those valuable quality um, uh, labor force that actually we really need in the, in the labor market right now. When we take a look at staffing right now in West River, it is at, and I'm going to use the word again, crisis, because I think mm -hmm. that that's a great word. Um, Every Child is Special had an east side location in the last month that closed completely. It dropped 70 spots, child care spots in Rapid City. Quality Time Child Care closed in the last two weeks. That is 40 spots. Um, Monument Health, um, as you may not be aware of, they have their own child care center to supply uh, workers for their hospital, and they remodeled a brand uh, a new facility in addition to the one that they already have, and it was ready in June, and they haven't been able to open it because they cannot staff it. So when you're looking at that, we at the YMCA, we currently have two classrooms closed. Uh, luckily, uh, we just didn't refill them in September when the kindergartners went to, to school um, because we knew we couldn't staff them. So when you start looking at that staffing shortage and, and what that looks like, it's having a huge impact on West River. Do you have senses of solutions? Do you have ideas about uh, you know communities, policy, what would help alleviate some of this pressure? Well, again, you know, I, I think during that Vakurovich presentation, they mentioned the fact that we really do need to look at zero to five education. So I think there's a big difference between childcare even and quality education because that zero to five is, is a critical time period when those kids are learning skills and we want them ready for kindergarten. Currently our state doesn't look at zero to five as an education level. They truly look at it as babysitting and we can't get our kids ready to learn if they aren't getting the skills and the socialization they need from zero to five. So again, we fund public school, kindergarten through 12th grade. We really need to look at zero to five as just a continuation of that education program and policies have to come in, in fact, that assist and subsidize zero to five learning across the state. Um, we are one of very few states in the entire nation that does not subsidize any zero to five education. You had something like 310 kids on the waiting list back when you talked to Jackie Hendry for this episode of South Dakota Focus. Has that number changed at all? Yes, it has. So right now we're, we, we're right around 350, 375 on a daily basis um, on the wait list. And again, we just there just is not enough child care in on the West River. And again, our rates, that's so funny about their presentation about Vakurvich Foundation. Um, even yeah. West River's uh, care amount is around $800 a month um, average, uh, whereas in Sioux Falls and East River, you're looking at $1,000 on average per month for the cost of care. And so again, we 
have a couple business models. The YMCA, as I mentioned to Jackie in that in that special, we work closely. Um, we help Black Hills Energy uh, with their child care facility that they are providing as a model. And she and I talked a lot about how do we get corporations into also assisting because of that uh, workforce model. Uh, they need labor and people need childcare and we've got to start pooling our minds together to figure out how to solve this problem as well besides making policy changes. So help me understand the Black Hills Energy Partnership. You know, the company subsidizes your work there. You also have, you know, child care outside of the partnership with Black Hills Energy. But then you just said the Monument Health has this facility, but no one to staff it. What solves the staffing problem? Well, we go back to, to wages again. The YMCA, you know, we have raised child care wages th- uh, three times in the last year and a half um, to find uh, staffing and quality staffing. And the reality of it is it again goes back to if those people have their own kids um, trying to put them into childcare so that they can work causes a problem. Um, we are also trying to create a model of assisting our staff with their childcare costs, so discounts on their childcare costs. And again, that requires subsidy um, outside. Um, we're, lu- we're lucky to have uh, you know the YMCA membership uh, gives to the community, which is part of what we do. So we use some of that money to subsidize our childcare processes. Black Hills Energy's childcare system, again, subsidizes their childcare uh, program, as does Monument Health. And so again, they're trying to look at those creative ways that we can support the staff and 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 bring them quality uh, wages to do the job that's so important for kids zero to five. If the state of South Dakota made this shift from thinking about birth to age five or zero to five as being, you know, more than babysitting and really early childhood education, would that change the qualifications and training you would have to provide for your staff? And how would that impact you? Well, right now, um, following the guidelines from the South Dakota Department of Education, um, our preschool teachers do have to have an education level and a certification to be certified teachers. So when you start talking about that education level, does it change? No, it, it still does. If you're a licensed facility and uh, there are so many training hours that are required, and so we're already doing that if you're a licensed facility in the state of South Dakota. So again, you can get a two-year associate uh, credential for that preschool age uh, teacher, which I think that wouldn't change. So there's really no change that we would have to enforce at this point. Um, I'm, I'm kind of excited. East River is testing a CD, the certification process, the two-year certification process. East River is actually um, testing a model right now to get high schoolers that may be not interested in going on to four-year college, but also that they would get internship hours while they're in high school and they could obtain that two-year certification um, over in the East River. It's a, it's a great model. Um, I'm just now toying with it right now to, yeah. to try to incorporate that with the Rapid City School District going into the fall of, of next 
year that we would be able to offer um, that two-year certification in tandem to high school students that are currently going to school, and so they could obtain that certification while they're in high school. Well, we will keep this conversation going, especially as we head into a new legislative session in January, so Keyes Larson will be inviting you back. Keyes is with the Rapid City YMCA, CEO there, and you can always watch uh, Jackie Hendry's reporting at uh, sdpb.org slash watch for the latest episodes of South Dakota Focus or check out the SDPB YouTube channel. Keys Larson, thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, what lies beneath the visual senses of our South Dakota landscapes Two South Dakotan artists set out to answer that question through a collaboration. Tom Dempster and Molly Noam Fulton's new exhibit, How to See a Dialogue Between Landscape and Imagination, is now open at the Washington Pavilion. There's an artist reception tonight. Tom Dempster is with us in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome back, sir. Delighted to be here. And Molly Fulton is with us from SDPB's Vermilion Studios on the campus of USD. Molly, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having us. So, Tom, we usually talk to you about politics as a former state lawmaker, county commissioner, and um, political junkie. Yeah, absolutely. But <laughs> you are also a well-known photographer, um, audio artist, visual artist. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to connect with Molly's work and pair her visual art with your photography. Well. Probably, uh, Lori, probably about two or three years ago, I became familiar with Molly's work through her website. Mm. And I said, man, (coughs) she really, really understands the prairie. And so Molly and I talked a number of of times. Uh, Good afternoon, Molly, by the way. (laughs) Good afternoon, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) She and and I talked a number of times. And I said to Molly, I said, Molly, I want to send you about 20 or 25 landscape photographs. And at least on one level, they're going to show you those landscapes. Hopefully, we'll show you uh, what things look like. But uh, what I want you to do, or what I'm asking you to do, is paint directly on the photographs and to show me what's really there. Mm And she didn't let me see her work for about six to eight months, nine months, <laughs> ten months. Is that right, Molly? Something <laughs> like that. Something like that. <laughs> um, and we sat outside at Josiah's because uh, when she had all 20 of them in a box. Oh, wow. Um, and I wanted to be in natural sunlight because we were sitting outside. And when I opened the box and I saw the first one, I was dumbstruck. Yeah. And I said to Molly, I said, Molly, I can't believe what you've done. You've really done it. And I looked at her and I said, I can't look at any more. I said, I have to reserve the rest of these for tomorrow. So when I pitched the show uh, to the curator at, w- at the Washington Pavilion a couple, two, three weeks later, he says, well, show me, uh, show, me your, show me your work. I opened up the box. I showed him the same photograph. He looked at one and he said, I don't need to see any more. When do we put up the show? And it's my hope that the same reaction that I had and the curator at the pavilion had will be the same reaction that other people have when they come to the show. Molly, you're able to do this work because you know this place. Tell me a little bit about your love for South Dakota's corners, stretches of highway, blight 
night landscapes and more. Yeah, well, first, Lori, I have to say um, Tom is one of the most unfailingly kind humans you will ever oh, run across. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's true. And so uh, first, it, it's a delight to be able to um, work with someone as just um, thoroughly good and, and kind as Tom. And, and I tell him all the time he um, is too kind about my work, but that this is who Tom is. And that's you learn a lot working with somebody like that. Um, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. In terms of the landscape, and I think, you know, I don't want to speak for Tom, but I, I think it's probably something that both of us and maybe drew us to one another is this um, love for the quiet spaces of South Dakota. And, uh, you know, when you look back in your history and this place, the land itself, where your feet stand have, have formed who you are. And, um, you know, it's also formed who your parents were and who your grandparents were. There becomes a real responsibility to honor that um, and to honor it in the most truthful way that, that you know how. Um, one of the things that I talk about a little bit in, in our artist statement is my family, my growing up in Custer State Park, um, my family was really um, keen to spend time out hiking and, and unfailingly dad would say, let's everybody just stop, stop moving. No talking, which is not easy to do when you're hiking with kids, <laughs> and um, just listen. And that practice, I think, imbued in me at some base level what it means to just be on the land and um, observe and feeling what that means. Molly, how did you make some of the artistic choices that you made when you're looking at a Tom Dempster painting? Some of them are exercises in restraint, it feels like. You're making really thoughtful choices about where to add the, uh, you know, the acrylic mm. paint and the color that makes his photograph doesn't obscure it; it enlivens right. it. Right, right. Uh, by hook or by crook is is the <laughs> shortest answer. Um, and you also don't see the failed pieces, right? But that was I talked to my husband <laughs> about that a lot through this process. Is um, and I told Tom in the beginning, what if I just ruin all your photographs, right? Like, how do you take someone's beautiful photography and then try and make it better? I mean, it just sounds um, absurd. So that was a real trick to try and slow myself down, which is not easy for me to do. Um, and also kind of act on impulse, you know? Yeah. Um, what I had to do as I looked at the photographs was, was really try and place myself in that space and... Um, Think about what it feels like to be, you know, on, on, in some of those scenes where it's it's a large um, grain bin in front of you and nothing else. And, and you know, without being in that place, you know what it feels like. You know that there's nothing around for miles and you know it's silent. You know you can hear the birds, you hear the wind. Um, and so just to try and feel like what it is like to be in that place and um, try in some way to add to speak to that um, that feeling of being there. And, and more often than not, that meant drawing a line of <coughs> motion mm. onto the image um, because the, the being on the land, there's a vibration. And so to try and intimate that vibration and intimate that um, sense of uh, being alive 
on the land. Um, was, I think that was what I was trying to do in, in many of the pieces, again, without overplaying um, what is already there. Yeah. The artist reception is tonight, November 3rd, 5 to 8 p.m. Central at the Washington Pavilion, sorry, and it's called How to See a Dialogue Between Landscape and Imagination. It's there until April 27th. So our time is short. I'm going to say thank you now and hope that you will come back before April 27th and we'll talk about this more. Tom, thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Lori. Molly, thank you. Thank you so much, Lori. We're going to go right to our episode of Fresh Tracks, which takes you on a journey through the eclectic tastes of Larry Rohr and David Hurstrud. Take a listen. I love the mix of music you picked out today. We've got a classic group. Melody comes first for me. You've got a couple of picks there. And then <laughs> I've got something for you that is just plain bizarre. Let's, let's start off with the Stones. Yeah, they've got a new song that's out called Angry which is off their first new album called Hackney Diamonds. It's their first new album in 17, maybe 18 years. There's even a film documentary about the making of the album. Angry, I think, is a really, really good, but it's not a great rock and roll song. I agree. But it's still better than maybe 90% of the music that is billed as supposedly saving rock and roll. I agree. <laughs> Why are you angry with me? Why are you angry? Please just forget about me. Cancel out my night. Please never run to me. I love you just the Mick has indicated that they are three quarters of the way through a follow-up album. Really? Yeah. As soon as you hear the cut, Angry, you recognize this has got to be the Rolling Stones, but it doesn't have the same edge as some of their other music has. It's definitely the Stones. Well, let me ask you this. Do you know anybody over 80 who has an edge? <laughs> I am still one of the world's biggest Rolling Stones fan. Yeah. I can go back to songs like Satisfaction, even off their music off their first album, Not Fade Away. It, it's still as wonderful today as it was back when I heard it the first time. We've got a couple of interesting tracks next. The first one, Yusuf Days. Are we kind of treading a, a line back and forth between jazz and kind of a classical sound here? I, I really like it. Days sees jazz as something that is constantly expanding and changing. I'm not sure if there's an easy answer to the question, but I, I love his search. It's, it's fascinating. And I think it's something, regardless of whether or not you're, you're a huge jazz fan, that I think people need to hear. Okay, Yusuf Days. Now, I love the, the name of the next group, the Penguin Cafe, and the song Welcome to London. Yeah, this is off a new album called Rain Before Seven.
originally started in 1972 by Simon Jeffries, who you know, thought classical music was too rigid and rock music was a little bit too limited for him. So he created the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, British music hall type music. He used various incarnations of the band, including violin, oboe, guitar, ukulele, and they recorded five albums before Jeffries died in 1997. His son, Arthur, decided to take the reins, kind of shortened it to Penguin Cafe, and since then has released six albums since 2011. Music, well, it's reassuring, I would say, rather than challenging. Penguin Cafe. Okay, friend of mine, a listener, in the course of another musical discussion, brought up an artist I had never heard of before. I described him to you as driving by a highway accident. You just can't look away. <laughs> the artist is Puddles the Clown and performs concerts known as Puddles Pity Party. I hear the train coming, rolling around the bend. I ain't seen the sun shining, I don't know where. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison and time keeps dragging on, but the train keeps it moving. You need to see the video. Here is a performer with an outstanding voice and a bizarre sense of creativity. Gotta love people like that. Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. I met with Brian Eno and we had some pie. When I hear a lonesome whistle, I hang my head and cry. A little bit of his song, Folsom Wizard which is a mashup between Folsom Prison and Pinball Wizard. There's also a live cut out there called Stairway to Gilligan's Island, where he sings the Gilligan's Island theme to the music of Stairway to Heaven. And in his video, mixes in video from the movie Waterworld with Kevin Costner. Just sit right back in Puddles the Clown is Mike Geyer. He's been singing and performing for a decade now. He was actually on uh, season 12 of America's Got Talent, made it to the quarterfinals, did a takeoff song with Postmodern Jukebox nine years ago, and it just went viral. He does a tour that can take him anywhere on the planet, but Puddles Pity Party is coming to Sioux Falls in early November. You know, I happen to love people that are creative. And I love people who are with a sense of humor I like even more. If you dare, it's Puddle's Pity Party coming to Sioux Falls and some wonderful musical sounds from the Penguin Cafe and their album Rain Before Seven. Black classical music is by Yusuf Deus and the Stones are back. They continue on with a new song called Angry. And our guide, as always, David Herzer. Thanks, David. Hey, good listening. Pity Party plays next Tuesday, November 7th at the District in Sioux Falls. You can hear an extended version of David and Larry's conversation at sdpb.org music.
Well, that is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On Mondays in the Moment, author Patrick Hicks brings readers an unflinching look at violence and gender during the Holocaust. It's a work of fiction, but it's a true story. It's the real world, and it is a world we'd be well to remember we still inhabit. The author joins us to talk about his latest book. It's called Across the Lake. And uh, also on Monday, we'll talk about a new center in Sioux Falls that provides sanctuary and celebration for transgender people. Evan Walton also brings you some reporting on agribusiness in the state. Well, if you can't tune in live to In the Moment, you can always subscribe to our podcast. Just find it on most podcast platforms and check out SDPB News on Instagram and on Twitter for more about the show. In the Moment's executive producer, Kara Hetland, we thank you. Producers, Ellen Kester and our Youngman, our engineer is Colton Nicholson. Our videographer is Jordan Henderson. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm our host, Lori Walsh, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>